these very fiery speeches, um, often violent speeches, violent rhetoric that he's using in speaking about the troops. You know, he's saying, if they come here, if they make it into our settlements, I say, lift the sword and slay them. Which I also mm-hmm. thought was interesting because in the book it talks about, he's like, you guys think that I'm just like Mr. Violent guy, but I say things to exaggerate because I'm not a very good speaker and I try yes. so hard. Mm-hmm. I'm really actually quite careful and yeah. you guys are just taking me at my face value when I tell you to like go kill people. Yeah, yeah. When I found that quote, I could not believe it. I was like, this has got to go in the book. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Kara Burrell. Sometimes I go by Nuance Ho, and sometimes I try to bring more lulls to the Mormon, ex-Mormon space. But with today, I'm going to be trying to bring some lulls to a space that might not have very many lulls in it. We are going to be talking about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which is a very dark chapter in Mormon history. But we will explore the entire context, lead up, and just the different aspects of this horrible atrocity that was committed by a group of Mormons in 1857, taking the lives of about 120 innocent men, women, and children. So we're going to be getting into all of this history through the course of a multi-part series with the author of one of just the most thoroughly researched books on this subject, Vengeance is Mine. So welcome to the Mormon History Hoedown, historian book, author, executive director, and publisher at Signature Books, one of my personal heroes, Barbara Jo's Brown. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kara. I'm really honored to be here. First I'm time so with you in your, your new studio, which is just beautiful. So tell people just a little bit about Vengeance is Mine and, you know, what would make somebody like you mm. want to sit down with a girl like me and a podcast like this <laughs> to uh, get this kind of story out? Tell yeah. me about yeah. why you wrote this book and the significance that it plays and why people should tune into our series. Sure. Okay. So let's talk about one of those questions. Why talk about this horrific part of our history, Mormon history, Utah history, American history, when it's so dark and so depressing? Um, And the reason why I think we study any aspect of our history like that, that is hard to engage with, is so that we can learn from it. And so we do not continue to commit the same mistakes of the past. So it's important Mm -hmm. to learn from those things. So any aspect of history that's tough, it's, it's worth engaging with. And so that's why this book is very important to me. The work that we've done on it is very important to me. And being able to talk with it as far and as wide as I can with Anyone who wants to hear more about it is um, really important to me. And I'm, I'm grateful that you invited me here, Kara. I am so grateful so. that you agreed to <laughs> do this series with me. Mm-hmm. And I know from listening to yeah, your interviews with John and Mormon Stories and various other interviews, it's just really excited that you wanted to do this as thorough as you've probably ever gone into, because we're going to make this multi, multi, multi-part yeah. and go over as many aspects yeah. as possible. And I'm just so grateful that you wanted to spend a lot of time on this because um, I've been doing various podcast interviews, which is fantastic. But when you only have an hour or two to cover mm-hmm. a subject as vast as this, you really only skim the surface. So I'm really excited to do a deep dive with you and do several different episodes going deep into everything about this history. 
I'm excited as well. So you watch my content a lot. You've told mm -hmm. me you've watched different videos, especially, and you know that I'm a silly girl and I try <laughs> to bring in some, some lulls. I, I love I your sense of humor. <laughs> so I, um, I wanted to start off this podcast series with telling you um, a little bit of a, of a sad story, but something that I think will serve as kind of an interesting omen for this series. So one of the biggest aspects that we will, we will answer this question very thoroughly, no stone unturned as we get through this of, you know, what Mormon leaders responsibilities were in carrying out this atrocity and especially Brigham Young, the mouthpiece mm -hmm. of God at the time. And somebody like me who is an ex-Mormon and uh, looking to my history of, you know, when you think about these people and them having this spirit of discernment or having this prophetic guidance and what stories like Mountain Meadows Massacre really, really teach you about the history of, you know, your ancestors of Mormon pioneers and of what your prophets were capable of. And so with that being said, um, I wanted to show you that um, I have a, a little bit of a surprise. What it is basically is I have these bookends that I have sometimes in my set, as you might know, yeah. of Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. And while I was redoing my set, Brigham Young, he became a fallen prophet and shattered into a bunch oh, of pieces. Oh, no, I've seen those bookends. That's <laughs> yeah. so sad. Yeah. So I thought it would be an interesting omen that before you came <laughs> over, <Wow>. Brigham Young. <laughs> oh. Oh. Anyway, so that's my joke about Brigham Young being a fallen prophet. When did, better? He, when did he fall? When was that? Last that's a week ago. Oh, okay. And I really was pretty <laughs> heartbroken, to be honest. <laughs> Those are cool bookends. So it's one thing to lose your faith in the church. It's another thing to, <laughs> to make lose a, your bookends. To lose your Joseph Smith Brigham Young bookends. <laughs> so I'm in the market for a new Brigham Young or a new leader generally. So. <laughs> Comes in um, hardback. Absolutely stop what you're doing and buy this book right now. It's really important to uh, dive into this history on your own, but this podcast will be also a really good overview. But as I was sitting in my studio, I'm telling you, I was listening. And as we will get in through this podcast series, there's just several different parts where you got to stop and cry. You talk about crying as you, you're reading it. So the first thing I did was, as any good editor should do, I sat down with all of the primary sources and read everything I could. And there was, I mean, just a mountain of sources and research that had been gathered by them. So I started reading through the accounts of it. And many times I found myself weeping at my desk. By way of background for the book, um, my co-author, Richard Turley Jr., he um, years ago, and I think it was 2001, 2002, he uh, was managing director of the LDS Church History Department and said, this is a subject that can't, we can't keep sweeping under the rug. We can't keep ignoring and hoping it's going to go away. The only way that we're ever going to <clears throat> move past this, if you will, is if we research it, shine all the sunshine we can on it, and publish our findings. And so he started uh, working on this project in 2002. And I was a professional, I am a professional editor and I got a call from Rick in 2005 asking me to come interview for a position working for him as an editor. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I have a three-year-old at home. I just found out I'm expecting another baby. Oh. It's not really a good time for me to work full time. So I was about to just say, no, thank you. And then I said, well, what would I would 
what would I be doing? And he said, I want you to edit the book I'm writing on the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And I said, oh, I'll be right there. <laughs> because this is a subject like like many Latter-day Saints or anyone, um, once they hear about it, they want to know how could this have happened, this horrific atrocity. So I w- I'd always wanted to learn more about it. And so I went in for the interview it didn't make sense for me with my family situation, but it just felt right that I was supposed to to take this on. I was really grateful I had a door I could close. So I was often closing that door mm-hmm. and crying as I was working. And I would find myself sobbing as I was driving home from work, um, just learning all the horrific things. So I was having PTSD-like symptoms. I don't, I was never officially diagnosed, but really having horrific um, nightmares, things mm-hmm. like that. Because so, there's so many journals and things that really detail the things we are going to get into. Eyewitness the eyewitness accounts of the massacre of, itself. Of the, the bodies of the children. And, and, and the, the blood. killing of, of, of children too and women and men. And um, yeah, it was it was horrific. Um, so I was hired to edit the first book and I did that. And then as I was editing it, I was loving doing research, though. I was loving learning about history. And that's when I decided I don't want to just edit historians. I want to be a historian. So I (laughs) think so we finished book one. It was published. It was called Massacre at Mountain Meadows. This is Vengeance is Mine is volume two in a two part series. So we published uh, Massacre at Mountain Meadows in 2008, published by Oxford University Press. And after that, I went back to grad school to get a master's in American history. And um, so I worked through, completed that master's degree. And then Rick Turley asked me to be his co-author in volume two, Vengeance is Mine. So the first book essentially ends in right after the massacre in September of 1857. Vengeance is Mine picks up on September 11th, 1857, which was the date of the massacre, and goes all the way through the trials of John D. Lee, one of its leading perpetrators, and the death of Brigham Young in 1877. We didn't want anyone to feel like they had to read the first book in order to understand the second book. So if you just want to read one book on it, you can pick this up and through the use of summary and flashback, we bring um, readers up to speed on this on this atrocity. For listeners who haven't heard of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, uh, what is what is it? And then tell me, rewind us a little bit about the context leading up to that. And we'll jump in. Absolutely. Um, so on September 11th, 1857, a group of Mormon militiamen in Southern Utah in a Highland Valley called the Mountain Meadows committed the, an atrocity in which they killed about roughly 100 California browned emigrants from Arkansas, men, women, and children. And uh, so with my historical research, we wanted to ask the question, how is it that otherwise decent people who had never committed murder before could come together and in an act of group violence, massacre a group of innocent people? Again, men, women, and children, mostly children. So that's that's the massacre. And I, I do want to preface our, our series today by saying this is talking about one massacre. It's important to always point out that there were many massacres of people in the Americas during this time, and most of those were of Native Americans. Right. And um, so when we talk about Mount Meadows, I don't ever want to forget that there were others. 
and far more extreme and more numerous of Native Americans in our nation's history as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so, for providing that context. Yeah, so in terms of um, like perpetrators mm-hmm. and, you know, acts taken against innocent settlers and Mormons committing these types of heinous kind of violence, um, where does this rank up there in American history? So this isn't, I think any massacre is horrific. You know, it's hard to like say, well, this one's the worst and this, you know, they're all horrific. Um, in terms of numbers, um, the largest massacre in American history we know of was the Bear River Massacre, which actually also took place in what was Utah Territory in 1863. And that was when um, a group of federal soldiers, army men, um, responding to complaints from local Mormon settlers about Shoshone raiding of, of their cattle and so forth and conflicts, responded by wiping out more than 400 Shoshone people. Mm. Um, they're all bad. I uh-huh. Yeah, I don't like to rank them like this was the worst, this is this, you know, because they're all horrific. But that's the one that we know of um, that it was the largest number of people. Most of those massacres were committed by the, the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. So what makes Mountain Meadows unique is that it was committed by a group of civilians, if you will. Yeah. Not the U.S. Army. Yeah. And I hope that throughout the course of our series together, we can talk a lot more about the the relationship between the Mormon settlers, U.S. government, and mm-hmm. yep. the indigenous populations. Because that's maybe dedicate a whole episode to kind of just yeah, that. Yeah. All those factors come into play. Definitely. Mm-hmm. All of those people's come together in conflict and that leads to this horrific atrocity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take me back to tell me the context. <laughs> the historical context. What were yeah. the circumstances? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's start diving into the context. And I, I also want to say that ensuring the historical context, it's never like as an excuse for what happened. There is no excuse and no justification for the Mountain Meadows massacre. Mm-hmm. But by understanding the historical context that led to the motivations and the mindset of people, we can understand how we can avoid those same kinds of, of mindsets mm-hmm. that could lead to violence today. So that's, right. again, important to, to understand the historical context. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, and I'll just, I also just wanted to add, since we're kind of like at war or potentially on the verge of war or mm-hmm. our country has been in a lot of war, yeah, context is really important to yeah. understand because- wouldn't, would you describe what the saints were kind of going through? They viewed as a war against the federal yeah, government. Yeah, I mean, right? what what happened in 1856 and 1857 in, into 1858 um, is called the Utah War. It was a war, and um, this was a war atrocity. Yeah, so, so a lot of tensions boiling over over yes, a lot of different yes. dominoes into coming into place. Yeah, so that's why we got it. That led to the death of all these innocent people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Exactly. Okay. So going back to um, uh, the start, if you will. So when the Latter-day Saints were in living in um, Missouri and in later in Illinois, they were violently driven from these states um, because of their re- religious beliefs and how they were um, different than the rest of their American counterparts. They tended to be um, theocratic they tended to be um, in vote in block. They started practicing polygamy, and you know a lot of things like that put them at odds with their um, counterparts. So they were violently dri- violently driven from Missouri and Illinois, 
1844, two of their leaders, their primary leader, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram, were killed in prison by a mob. And all of these things led to the Latter-day Saints leaving what were then the borders of the United States. They wanted to leave the country and be free outside of the U.S. to practice their religion in peace. So they leave and uh, travel 1,500 miles to the West trying to escape the United States. They arrive in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. Not long after they arrive in 1848, there's the uh, U.S.-Mexican War in which the United States wins that war. And through the Treaty of Hidalgo, all of the land and essentially the Western United States today was ceded and became part of the U.S. It was taken over from Mexico. So the Latter-day Saints soon find themselves you know, after having traveled, traveled 1,500 miles to escape the borders of the United States, they soon find themselves back in the United States again. Um, so initially, Utah was created as a territory in 1851, not as a state. Territories could not elect their own leaders. Um, they were essentially like colonies. And so the federal government appoints the leaders over the territories. So Brigham Young is appointed as territorial governor and uh, superintendent of Indian affairs by the president of the United States. Half of the appointees, though, are non-Mormon. And very quickly, we start to have conflict again. Um, these non-Mormon territorial appointees, they write back to Washington, D.C., to the president, and they say, the Mormons, they're a growing theocracy. They're not a democracy. Um, Brigham Young is the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's also the governor, so there's no separation of church and state there. Um, they complain that the Mormons are preaching polygamy as a, um, a religious tenet and that people have to enter into polygamy, which is, goes against the American mainstream value of monogamy. And they're saying that Mormons are forming alliances with Native Americans, local Native Americans, and poisoning the Indians against the United States. So they're writing these kinds of letters back east and complaining about the saints. And for their part, the Latter-day Saints feel like these leaders that are appointees over them don't uh, agree with their values. So in January of 1857, the Utah legislature writes a memorial or a petition back to Washington, D.C. and says, if you keep sending us leaders that we don't agree with, we're going to send them away. Uh, one member of the legislature describes it as practically a uh, declaration of independence. So <clears throat> the newly elected president, his name is James Buchanan, he determines that something has to be done about these crazy people in the West, and he decides to replace Brigham Young as governor and send an army with that replacement to occupy Utah territory in early 1857. And for, you know, any foreign listeners to the podcast who may not be <laughs> super familiar with America, but I think they could probably guess, um, you know, America has had this real manifest destiny attitude. Yes, for a absolutely. While. So, mm -hmm. um, what were yeah? What was like the context of the U.S. government either you know needing to have the Mormons um, like on their side to help or 
you know, yeah. getting them out of the way. So Great what question. were the tensions that kind of were yeah. coming up? Yeah. As people were trying to go see to shining sea. Exactly. Yeah. That I'm so glad you bring up manifest destiny. And we talk about that in chapter two of the book, of course, but at first, <laughs> very impressive, your knowledge of history. Um, so at first the federal government is pleased with the Latter-day Saints mass migration to the West because they don't know yet about how theocratic it's going to be. They don't know yet that they're practicing polygamy they don't know yet that they're going to form alliances with native people, all these See, things. This is a thing where it's like, <laughs> um, the lulls will come in. If you just know your Mormon history, the, the old fat cats in Washington, they don't know the first thing about Mormons. <laughs> they don't know. They have like this Lamanite doctrine about the native Americans. That's right. They don't know about the, they don't know about the polygamy. Were they really not? No, really no, because polygamy wasn't publicly announced that the Latter-day Saints were practicing it kept kind of under the rug. Yeah. So. I thought it was the Republican Party. Was it not James Buchanan who ran on the platform of ridding the in world eight, of the barbarism of slavery and polygamy? Or was that later? Yes. No, that was 1856. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the Republican, the newly formed Republican Party in 1856, back then was the liberal or progressive party. Anyways, it, it's flipped now today. Um, Republican is the conservative party. But anyway, so it was a new liberal progressive party started in 1856. And they ran on the platform of ending the twin relics of barbarism, polygamy, and slavery. And who else was doing polygamy besides the Mormons is my question. <laughs> were they not just saying? Uh, I think, no, it was, no, they were talking about the Mormons. They were definitely thinking about the Mormons. Okay. The American dream. Congratulations, Mormons. <laughs> Mostly it's, it goes back to racism. It was, okay, these are white people. They wanted to spread, you're talking about manifest destiny. That was trying to spread white civilization throughout back then actually they were looking at possibly the entire american continent eventually some folks were talking that way in fact president james buchanan wanted to he was an expansionist and he wanted to expand the us civilization civilization white civilization eventually through the entire american continent north and south america but did he get his wish no he does not they're expanding from sea to shining sea as you said manifest destiny they believed that it was a god-given destiny that they were meant to spread this civilization so when the mormons start leaving in mass they're white right they're european americans they start heading into the west they're like great okay we need people to colonize these territories that we've just this territory that we've just received from mexico and so at first they're like, great, okay, they're going to help colonize these areas. We want more white settlers to move to the West. Um, but then when these federal appointees I was telling you about, they start reporting that there's polygamy, theocracy, and alliances with Native peoples, they become, the federal government becomes concerned about that. Um, and then combined with that memorial or petition I was mentioning that the Utah State Legislature Utah territorial legislature sends to the federal government kind of sounding like they're threatening that they want to break off from the United States and form their own country. They, can't um, they have say that. we can't have that because then you would have this separate country in between the East and the nation's newest state of California and Oregon territory, which is there's so much wealth in the land and in gold and so forth on the West, they're like, we cannot have a separate country. We cannot have these Mormons, if you will, in the middle of the United States that aren't in compliance with our ideals of democracy, 
monogamy, so forth. Hogging so. all of the good skiing. <laughs> yeah, skiing didn't quite exist yet, but yeah, eventually. You're the historian, you tell me. Anyway, so um, for people who are not aware, what is the significance of like the Salt Lake Valley to Mormons themselves? And, you know, why did they feel like yeah. no matter what, they are not going to be moved again or exactly. they needed to stay there? And then obviously there's significance, like you mentioned, with the U.S. government and people wanting to be able to expand on the Oregon Trail and go out to California and needing to have that route. But, you know, there's also people already living there, like the indigenous people. Oh, yeah. So, for centuries. <laughs> so what, what if you want to explain any more yeah. about the significance of, Absolutely. of why Mormons were going to stick to their guns? No pun intended. But it's true. They did stick to their guns. <laughs> um, so, yeah, after having been driven from Missouri and Illinois violently, and I cannot overstate like how traumatic that was for the people who experienced it. I mean, the, sure. these people became refugees and hundreds died as a result of being um, driven uh, from these states. So they come, again, they arrive in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. As you mentioned, there are many indigenous groups who have already been living here for generations. Um, they begin occupying their lands and occupying water sources and so forth. Um, but they start building a new place where they can live beginning in 1847. So by 1850, by 1857, when they hear that Brigham Young's being replaced as governor and that an army is coming with that governor to occupy the territory, Brigham Young says, I feel to be oppressed no more. I will submit to oppression no more. And so he says, we're not going to be driven again. We're going to come up with strategies to make sure that we're safe here and that we don't that we don't ever have to leave again. Frankly, they're losing places where they could go if they wanted to stay together as a large community of saints. So they're they're kind of being hemmed in, if you will, on the West Coast with the settlement taking place in California and Oregon and then on the East. Um, so they're like, we're not we're not going to leave again. Mm. We're not going to be driven again. And what's interesting that we found in our research is that in 1856, they're worrying about being driven eventually from the Salt Lake Valley. There's newspaper reports from the East and they're reading these newspaper stories of people are saying, hey, it's only a matter of time before we're going to take over. You know, now that the Mormons have developed Salt Lake Valley in these areas that we're going to come in and take that land for ourselves, that choice land. And so they're worrying in, starting in 56 that something's mm -hmm. going to happen. And even mm -hmm. Young says in 56, if an army ever comes here to try and drive us, we will stop them. We will fight them. We will oppose them. Like no one's going to take this Salt Lake land from anyone else. That's our job to do against the indigenous it, it, people. Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> our job. <laughs> yeah, this is our land now. We've taken it from the native people, but very well. And the other problem is that President James Buchanan, he didn't send any kind of notification to the Latter-day Saints as to why he's sending in troops. Okay. And, yeah. So take me through yeah. that. Cause I, you know, growing up, I remember just hearing all the stories about the persecution. Polygamy is the last thing on my little Mormon mind. When I'm thinking about. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't get mentioned so much, does it? <laughs> the, tur the church is true and the U.S. government just is always breathing down. Yeah, and there's, yeah. there's a church movie I remember where there's like a bunch of U.S. troops coming in and they have to like cover up the temple 
in some yes, way. Yes, that's this. This is the. This is scene. what the war was. Okay, yeah, this and is they're what coming the war in, was. and yeah. they're just like, oh no, persecution yeah. again. Not this time. Yes. Not in this place. Yes, that's how. That's how young church leaders and the Latter Day Saints in general interpret this. That's how they interpret it. So again, why would they interpret? the coming and they hear the first thing that they hear is that it's 2,500 troops coming. And back then in 1857, that was like a huge portion of the U S army that we didn't, they didn't have the military operation that we do today. So 2,500 troops coming is huge. It's also the first time that um, the federal government has sent troops against its own people. Now, of course the civil war will change that. It will happen. Mm-hmm. in the civil war, but this is the first time it's ever been done. And so, yeah, so the Latter-day Saints freak out. Um, and if you think about it, if president Joe Biden tomorrow said, I'm sending some troops out there to occupy Utah, <laughs> didn't tell our governor why or anything, people would freak out. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. So. Occupy Twila all you want. <laughs> I'll, I'll sit back. That's not me. <laughs> so anyway, so you take that combined with what they'd experienced in Missouri and Illinois that's why they react the way they do. They re- react very strongly. So the U.S. government is sending these troops out there, but they're not actually able to reach Salt Lake. Not that winter. Not that winter. Yeah, so stop them. Brigham Young had some things up his sleeve. Yes. Yeah, so Brigham Young and his advisors, they decide, okay, what are we going to do to resist the troops? What are we going to do to um, stop being either driven from Utah, our new home, or even just having the military occupy our settlements. And quick question, were the saints themselves aware of this and the talks between the government and the people kind of watching, breathing down their necks? Was it well known by the people that, you know, we got to keep polygamy under wraps or what was the attitude of just saints yeah, generally think, versus like the PR that Brigham Young was trying sure. to put out? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, initially just the local people, they're just trying to farm and eke out a living, scratch out a living, living here, you know, farming and, and building homes. They're, they're living in poverty. Um, there, there's not a lot of wealth. There's a lot of wealth in Salt Lake. Brigham Young's quite wealthy, but just the general people are just trying to live, you know, survive. And so, yeah, I think the local, that the church leaders had a responsibility on how to handle this. They could have said, okay, we're going to be calm about this. We're just going to deal with this. And we would never have had a massacre. Um, But unfortunately they react the way they do and they do rile up the people just, you know, Brigham Young's speeches. Um, I can't remember which chapter it is, but he gives the speech on August 16th, 1857, and he is riling up the people. It's um, in, in downtown Salt Lake City. And he's saying, I say, let, if the troops come here, we will resist. Um, and those resistance strategies are they're going to burn their settlements, burn everything, lay their homes and their settlements in ashes and flee to the mountains. Um, and then just fight it out guerrilla style if necessary, but they do not want the troops to come in and occupy. If people want to look at world history, they can look at, um, the battle of Sebastopol, it's called where, uh, people in Russia took this strategy and they burned down their settlements and left nothing for those who were coming in the invaders. So anyway, so he's saying that. He's also trying to win Native American alliances with the local Native people. 
having them fight with him if they need to fight the federal government or at least not fight against the Latter-day Saints. So they go to Native people and are trying to, you know, strengthen their alliances and their friendships with them. Some of the Native Americans say, okay, we'll fight along with you. Others say, well, you know, we'll just go up in the mountains and then let you to the federal government and you fight it out and we'll just come back and see who's the winner, which is a very wise response. Um, so that's one of the the things that they plan to do. Another strategy is they want to stop the troops on the plains, if you will, so they cannot enter Utah settlements. So the Young sends Mormon militiamen, they ride out into what is today Wyoming, and they burn the grass in front of the approaching troops and their supply wagons and so forth, so that their animals, if they don't have fuel, if they have nothing to eat, they can't progress. And so their animals um, die. And uh, they also burn the supply wagons, the government supply wagons. And this is so all there's no part supplies. of Brigham's strategy. It's so part of his strategy. That's where we know for sure the, like, the blame was placed on him as a prophet, where this is part of his strategy that uh, yeah. the way that we get these troops off of our back now. We keep him from coming in. Yeah. So what he says, and we quote him in the book, of course, but he says, if we can just keep the troops from coming in this winter. So Buchanan sends them in May of 1857. So they're making their way across the continent. There's no railroad yet. That doesn't come until 1869. So they're making their way across the con- continent using draft animals and horses. And um, and Young says, if we can stall them on the plains this summer, so or this winter, so if it starts snowing, they can't progress anymore. They're going to have to spend the winter on the plains. Then maybe when Congress meets, they will be they will hold the president in check. And Congress hopefully will say, hey, pull the troops back. It's not okay for you as a president to, to send troops against our own people. Um, so that is their strategy. And that's exactly what happens. They are able to stop the troops' progression. So they end up spending the winter uh, near the remains of the burned down Fort Bridger in what is today Wyoming. So that strategy works. Um, and Young is saying, we do not want a drop of blood shed. We want to win public opinion and a public opinion against what the president has done and against the troops coming here. Um, so he's saying that, but ultimately, of course, much blood is shed at the Mountain Meadows in a war atrocity. Mm-hmm. So that's what was interesting to me is sometimes when you think about Brigham Young, I think of him just being like my way, right or wrong, but somebody who had to play politician as prophet and eventually, you know, wanting statehood and wanting respect and, and things like that. Like what were his, his motives? One, first of all, in what he was trying to, to do, was it just to, um, you know, secure safety for his people? Where is he also trying to secure statehood eventually like good PR And then mm-hmm. like, what were some of the things that he was saying like publicly about not shedding innocent blood, like more publicly, you know, yeah. the, the old um, yeah, so that's public the- position versus a private position Absolutely. about how we know what his actual intentions were throughout this time and what he wanted to get out of it. Exactly. So publicly he is, as I, I was talking about these, these very fiery speeches, um, often violent speeches, violent rhetoric that he's using in speaking about the troops. You know, he's saying, if they come here, if they make it into our settlements, I say, lift the sword and slay them. 
And again, people can read all of these quotes that we have in our book. So he uses very violent rhetoric at times in trying to just rile the people up to withstand the troops. Which we will um, get into more in our second episode. Okay, great. About blood atonement and great. The other word I was Mormon, the Mormon Reformation, Mormon Reformation, avenging the blood of the prophets. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of violent rhetoric. Yeah. And all of the scriptural support mm -hmm. and things that are still in the Mormon context and what even into this day that people still draw from. Absolutely. But, so he's saying this very violent rhetoric, which I also mm -hmm. thought was interesting because in the book it talks about, he's like, you guys think that I'm just like Mr. Violent Guy, but I say things to exaggerate because I'm not a very good speaker and I try yes. so hard. Mm -hmm. I'm really actually quite careful. And yeah. you guys are just taking me at my face value when I tell you to like go kill people. Yeah. Yeah. When I found that quote, I could not believe it. I was like, this has got to go in the book, you know? So he's saying like, I, when I say slit their damn throats is the quote, um, I don't really mean it. I'm just using really strong language because that's the only way I know how to express myself. But I don't really literally mean it. But he has the bully pulpit. And if you use violent language, it doesn't matter whether you mean it exactly or not. If you have, you know, followers that follow you and you use violent rhetoric, they're going to take it and run with it. And so, yeah, yes. Insert examples from <laughs> 21st century. <laughs> yes. Yes. I yeah. um watching 21st century, you know, recent occurrences in our in our country unfold. And I thought, oh wow, we are repeating some mistakes mm -hmm. from our past. Yeah. Not everyone can be a nuance and say, I think he's speaking <laughs> metaphorically or Exactly. But there are definitely people who uh, have a tr trigger happy who are jumping at the chance to go fight for their religion and, yep. and their land hearing, and their families. Yeah, and if they're and, hearing a, a popular leader, strong leader that they support and they follow and they hear that leader using some violent language, even if that leader truly doesn't intend that. That's what they're saying, though. People are going to act on it, and there are consequences. Yeah. There are consequences. Responsibility so. for all involved. Yeah, absolutely. So, Brigham Young, that, I thought that quote was so funny and interesting. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, I know. I I couldn't believe it when I found it. I was like, this is perfect. But are there, is, is there um, criticisms of, let's say, this book or of um, just generally the story of Mountain Meadows being told in a way where... Things like that could look like it's almost like an apologetic response mm -hmm. to softening like Brigham Young's responsibility or putting some type of spin on the actual atrocity itself. Mm -hmm. Where do you find that when talking about the story that some people think like? Sure. I So people who haven't read the book will jump to conclusions and say, oh, she must be apologetic or things she's saying, that sounds apologetic to me. And I would just invite people to read the book and then form those conclusions. You've read the book. I personally, I think it's pretty hard hitting and pretty damning. <laughs> um, it's all in there. As historians, we are trained to share all the different points of view of people. Mm -hmm. 
So you wouldn't just share, you, you gather all the sources you can. The past is gone, right? At we least cannot... that's what Brigham thinks of himself as he, at some point he thought of himself exactly. as a guy. Exactly. Sometimes. Exactly. So when I share, you know, a point of view that's coming from Brigham Young, I'm not saying, oh, Brigham Young's right. As a historian, I'm saying this was his point of view. Right. This was this person's point of view. This is this person's point of view. You share all of the points of view. And then you interpret it as a historian, what you think this all means, and then you put it before readers. And so I just invite readers. I I don't care whether readers agree with any of my conclusions or not. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I would just invite people to engage with this history, engage with the sources, engage with the work, and then form their own own conclusions. Yeah, yeah. engage so. with the stories of. I don't even want to say it. Insert horrible thing that happened to mm. X person and bodies being found in dismantled different ways mm. yeah. and wolves coming to yeah. take their bodies. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, draw your own conclusions from. Yeah. And ugh, there's just so many um, things that I think is so interesting on top of just the historical work that you guys did for this book. You guys said you even went to uh get to the bottom of when they were oh. like calling the women like whores and stuff. Oh yeah. So, so later after the massacre, and this is one of the horrible parts of the story, the perpetrators of the crime seeking to, I think, alleviate the the feelings they're feeling, seeking to justify the horror, of what they've done. They resort to victim blaming um, and one of the things they say, well, these were people were rotten with the pox anyways. Rotten with the pox means they had venereal disease. As if that's any kind of a justification. But it's mm -hmm. also not true. It was very important to us to debunk any of the horrible things that were said and spread and lies and rumors that were spread by the perpetrators of the crime after the massacre. But um, yeah, a woman, uh, forensic anthropologist named Shannon Novak, she wrote a book called House of Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. If people want to read more about her work and about the um, culture of the Arkansas immigrants themselves, she examined those bones and found no evidence of venereal disease. Um, so we we mentioned that in the book. So yeah, Anyways. so I thought mm. that was just important to bring up because yeah, absolutely. Like, as a historian, you have to say stuff like, you know, yeah. this is, we went from all these original documents and sources, draw mm -hmm. your own conclusions. This is what we mm -hmm. found. And the book itself is is told in such an interesting narrative form. I told you on Thank the phone you. yesterday yeah. about how yeah. it just feels like you're listening to an actual movie that yeah. just sucks you in and it peppers yeah. all of the different, um, yeah, the all of the different dates and timelines and weaves them together into like this masterpiece in oh, in audible you. form. <laughs> um, but in addition to just how you weaved the book together, so interesting that for so long these people not only did they die in this horrible way, but then they had these these like yes. slanders being told about them Absolutely. that is just not fair. And so yeah. as a historian, I know you have to be like, you know, let's get this story out. Let's let's draw your own conclusion though. But then again, it's like people have been drawing their own conclusions from mm -hmm. things that assuage their guilt for a long time that's yeah. been passed down. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, using historical research and forensic research, for example, it's not just a match. Yeah. Right. It's not just a matter of saying, okay, there's no historical documentation at the time. Like, well, I take that back. There is some contemporaneous sources that show that there was some conflict going on between these, this group of immigrants um, and 
the the local Mormon settlers. But what we were able to trace is most of these horrible stories of these bad bad things these people were doing that uh, that that came later, and they grew over time, and they were perpetuated and spread by the mm-hmm. perpetrators themselves. Like so it was yeah. So it was very important to us to debunk everything we could and. Basically, we were to be able to debunk everything, um, and that's um, I've I've through my work I've been working on this project for 18 years now. But through my work, I've been blessed to make a lot of friends with descendants of the victims, um, dear friends. And when I've asked them what what I can do for them, one of the things they say is just make sure the truth about our ancestors yeah. is told, the truth that they weren't doing anything wrong. And this book very much does that it it just it just clears them of all blame all false rumors and so forth and just shows that they were just innocent people in the wrong place at the wrong time Mm -hmm. getting those stories told so i can't wait to get into more parts of this series with you and tell more of their stories what happened to like their surviving kids some of it is heartbreaking but there's parts of the book that I cried at that yeah. were some of the most tender parts um, about what yeah. happened to those kids. So yeah. Yeah. please stay tuned for that within the series. Yeah. So 17 kids, 17 very young children, age six and under, most of them babies and toddlers were spared the slaughter. So yeah, we will talk about, about those survivors. Yeah. yeah. So as you can tell, there's so many different pieces that yeah. we're just leaving you on different cliffhangers <laughs> right now because yeah. this is what the multi-part series is for. So yeah. Um, Barbara, how do you think we did on giving people kind of an introduction to the context of what led up to the massacre? Yeah, what there's, else do there's you think more, that you want to add? There's before? more. There's a lot more. Do you want to do it in part two or get into it well, let's now? Let's do part or? two. will okay. be about the Mormon Reformation and blood atonement. Yep. And then we'll see where we go from there. Sounds but telling good. the story of of the massacre, of the kids, of mm. the perpetrators, of John D. Lee, of... Every different single piece of the trial afterwards mm. is fascinating. Mm. And all the way up to, like you said, the book ending with uh, the death of Brigham Young mm-hmm. and what we can all learn from this situation, yeah, yeah. from this atrocity. Mm-hmm. One thing I was going to say when you say, you know, that it's just a fascinating narrative and just riveting narrative, the book, we wanted to write it in narrative format instead of a documentary history. A documentary history meaning you would just quote all the sources. A, we couldn't have done that. There are literally thousands of sources that we cite in the book. Um, but we didn't want to do it thematically either because it's a story. It's a dramatic story. So we tell it in a narrative format, storytelling format. And uh, my co-author and I, we often said, this needs to be a movie or even better yet, maybe like a six-part Netflix st- series that can really delve deep because it is just a riveting, totally riveting story of American history, not just Mormon history, not just Utah history. It's American history. Absolutely. 100%. So. Couldn't agree more. I hope that all of the producers out there in Hollywood are listening <laughs> right <Please>. now. <laughs> so the book is Vengeance is Mine and tell people where they can find it. And so where you can you. get it. You can Google it, find it online. It's called Vengeance is Mine, the Mountain Meadows Massacre and its Aftermath. It's also in a lot of local bookstores. I always encourage people to buy local if you can. All right. I will leave links down below from where to purchase it. And I'm serious. I wrote on my Instagram when I was reading this. I said, 
you guys, you're not my friends if you don't read this. Oh, okay, I, Kara, thank you. you don't, it's one of those <laughs> yeah. things where it's an experience yeah. where I'm like, I'm a changed person. I, oh. I, you don't understand what I've been through listening mm. to this book. So I'm so mm. grateful that you came in to, yeah. to talk to me um, and, and give my listeners more context about this really important piece, like you said, of Mormon, American, U.S. history, religious history, Native American history, military so, history, military history, and all of that meadow history. So thanks for having me on again, Kara. And in our next episode together, we, we, we talked about the political conflict that's going on in 1856, 1857. Next time we will talk about the religious um, mindset, the religious doctrines and so forth that are being taught in Utah at the time that also play into what happened. All right. Can't wait. Tune in. That will be the next episode of the Mormon History Hoedown. Barbara, thank you so much. And I also want to thank anyone who has donated to my Venmo Dropbox, um, make super chats on YouTube or join my Patreon. That all goes to my nonprofit. It's all tax deductible. And you guys have all helped me make this podcast. So do me a favor as well while you're at it. If you can just subscribe to this channel, hit the bell for notifications for when new videos drop, which costs nothing and helps out massively in pushing this important content. All the links to donate are down below in the description. I'm really excited and really thankful to be able to set up my new studio, have a bunch of really diverse, interesting guests coming on throughout the year. Thank you guys so much for your support. And I will see you next time on the Mormon History Hoedown. Thank you so much, Barbara. All right. Love you so much. Bye.